The views and opinions expressed by the guests on this podcast are that of their own. In no way, shape, or form do they reflect the official policy or position of the Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack. Descended into the Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack, a commercial diving podcast by working divers for divers. This episode is brought to you by Ocean Eye Inc. Ocean Eye's main focus is you, the commercial diver. With industry leading end to end service and expertise, they got everything you need for your next dive job. You need your gear maintenance or repaired? Need some new products or consulting? Ocean Eyes got you covered. Give them a call at 610-621-5750 or visit them online at OceanEyeInc.com. This is the Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you for joining us. Man, what a great... Once again. What a great episode last week with John Blunt. I enjoyed it very much. It was like a reunion because I haven't seen him. That's the thing. Tell us a little bit about that because we 10, didn't even 11 years. talk about that. I mean, people kind of like they got it they that got you guys that. went to school together. Yeah, we went to school together. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What is there to say except that he's awesome? He was awesome then. He's still awesome now. I think he was the head of our class. I know he was like our our in-class dive soup, right? I don't remember what we called it at the time, but he was the guy. Um he was a hard worker then, so nothing's really changed. And I think he was just head of the class. I think he was not, maybe not valedictorian, but he was definitely the guy. Yeah, that's pretty neat. Like out of it. all of us, we knew he was going to make it. Oh, that's At awesome. least he was going to do it. Right. But yeah, so well, we knew you were going to do it because you already had the right, job. Already, at the I city. already had a job. Right. I didn't need that school. <laughs> <laughs> I was. I was going to just have a needed job. a way to get the card. Yeah. I, I just. I was going to have a job no matter what. Yeah. So, that's that. Oh, speaking of, um, the Port of Long Beach also has a podcast. Oh, I did not know this, and no one else knows this. And this is kind of a mood point to bring up because people out in the world will never hear that podcast because <laughs> apparently it's only for employees. Oh, that's cool. No, it's not. No. Because how many people are listening? I've never even heard of it before. I've been working there for almost 15 years, 15 years now. It's been going on for a little bit. I guess. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. And so they're featuring me because they know that we have this podcast. Oh, awesome. And so they want to talk about it. And I'm like, I don't know. Our podcast is sometimes a little bit inappropriate for mm-hmm. the workplace. NSFW. Yes, it's a workplace. FW. Yeah. It's that. So For like I don't the know longest, what they're gonna ask me. They're just gonna ask me about what we do as divers. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna have to tell them what we do, but like actually tell them not what I usually say, which is Yeah, I gotta keep it PC. Yeah, I gotta be real nice about everything. Yeah. So I guess I was, it's fun. I was going to say, cool. I didn't know what NSFW stood for sure, for sure, like sure, the sure, longest sure. time. Oh, oh, yeah. I never know what any of those mean, to be honest. Yeah. So that was a great episode. We are going to be talking today about submarines. Oh, man. A little bit. Yeah. So. In a town where I was born, lived a man. Okay, go ahead. So by the time you've heard this episode. That was the Beatles. 
They're yeah, the Beatles suck. I know, but you know, I think I'm a fan now. I, I think know. the older You've been slowly I, the, changing. The you older once got I into get, a barroom fracas. Yeah, I almost over the Beatles. <laughs> I almost got into a barroom fracas over the Beatles. I was at a punk bar that played punk music. Why? Why are the Beatles there? I know, but submarines though—they make a great submarine song. They do. My and daughter loves it. We actually have a special guest that's going to help us talk a little bit about submarines. Yes. So, pause for just a quick little second. It's great to have you back on the show again, John. So it's, this is a uh, John Council. He's with the uh, Historical Dive Society. Is that correct? Yes, correct. All right, and you also run the museum on uh, Catalina Island, right? I run the Avalon Diving History Exhibit, so it's kind of a tie-in with the Historical Diving Society uh, USA. So they kind of, you know, work hand in hand. It's it's all about the promotion and preservation of diving history, and and uh, the the museum certainly is a, a big part of that because. Uh, we host visitors to the island, and it's a it's a place for them to come and learn about the history of diving, particularly some of the tie-ins with Catalina Island, which is pretty big. And we love that museum. We did visit it, and mm-hmm. uh, we did an episode earlier mm-hmm. in, uh, I believe, season two. Make sure you go back and listen to that. Right. And uh, always looking for new members to the Historical Dive Society, so make sure you guys subscribe. Amazing uh, magazine. And yeah. HDS.org. HDS.org. HDS.org membership. Yeah, thank you. For a very low, low price to help support our uh, historical dive endeavors. I'm a member. Yeah. Bondoler's Dive Shack is member. Yeah, I'm members. Okay, cool. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. Yeah. So, again, John, thanks for coming on. We're talking about submarines. So, yeah. we're talking to John Council about submarines because he is a uh, submarine enthusiast. Is that correct? Well, a little bit more than that. About uh, just over 30 years ago, Ooh. I was trained as a submersible pilot. Uh, for my, I look like an idiot right now, don't I? No, no, no. <laughs> I, I was trained as a pilot uh, to do our work that we were conducting uh, uh, benthic survey work in the Arctic um, at that time in my career, and uh, and submersibles made sense for some of the work we were doing. We were doing uh, uh, data collections for the EPA and NOAA, and also the uh, Alaska Department of Fish and Game. So <clears throat> we were providing the data that we collected to those agencies and then they would utilize that to determine all, all sorts of things like, you know, future operations, uh, what they would allow near or offshore developments, things like that, uh, and how it might affect the uh, the benthic zones, the sub- subsurface areas of uh, coastal waters in, in the state of Alaska. Awesome. That's amazing. Yeah. I thought you just like owned a sub and just tootled around oh, no. Catalina Island. No, I, uh, <laughs> I've done a, a lot of projects over the years, you know, uh, lots of documentary film projects, looking for ancient shipwrecks over in the Aegean Sea with uh, Dr. George Bass, who was the father of nautical archaeology. Um, I've got a lot of submersible time uh, under my belt in the last 30 years, including, you know, like exosuits and things like that. So um, I, I'm, I'm pretty well um, connected to the industry and the, and the players within it. So uh, what's been going on on the East Coast over at the uh, site of the Titanic wreck is uh, is really tragic. There's uh, five people's lives, of course, hanging in, in the balance, and really nobody knows what's going on yet. Um, <clears throat> all, all that is known is that, you know, about an hour and 45 minutes into deployment, um, Communication was lost with the Ocean Gate sub uh, Titan, and um, you know, unfortunately, it's, it's been a little bit uh, 
closed mouthed about exactly what was taking place from from uh, their operation. I, I don't know exactly. Nobody really knows exactly what's going on, to be quite honest with you, other than the sub is now missing and uh, they're trying to locate it. Um, there has been reports uh, yesterday and today that uh, they've heard some um, cyclical banging or clanging that might might be emanating from the hull of the sub and it would be possibly uh, a man-made sound because they're um, receiving these these pings uh, on the hour and half hour marks which would be sort of a standard you know distress signal uh, effort uh, if you were trapped in the machine but it's purely spec- speculation and, and uh, conjecture at this stage, so nobody really knows for sure. And so what's going to help th- this whole thing is to get, uh, you know, eyes, whether that's human eyes or or, um, or video camera uh, systems on, on the wreckage itself, find out where the sub is, and then see what they can do from there to try to ascertain what's going on. But <clears throat> right now, of course, what they're thinking is there's a very narrow – uh, window of operations that uh, could possibly f- still fit within a, a life-saving rescue mission because of the if the life support system is still operational, they would have maybe about maybe a day or just under a day's worth of oxygen left in the system to to sustain them. Um, life support is critical, and they're and they're right at the, the closing window, if you will, time-wise of what they've got available to them for uh, life support as far as breathing medium. But also, in addition to that, they're in waters that are probably in the in the low to mid-30s temperature-wise. And so without any power, which doesn't look like they have much, um, they're probably very, very cold down there as well. So that's sort of like if you're looking at life support, you, you look at respiration first that, you know, that that's the one quick thing to that you got to got to get a handle on is being able to breathe, obviously. And then the next thing is going to be temperature control, followed by, you know, food and and uh, water and water being ahead of food, I guess. So um, so first and foremost, you got to keep breathing and then uh, and then you got to find a way to to maintain your temperature. So those are two critical things that they're going to be dealing with. And and. Uh, Without knowing where the machine is yet, it's really, really um, harrowing. Yeah. So at at the time that that a lot of our listeners are going to hear this, you know, we're probably going to know a little bit more about what mm-hmm. happened. Mm-hmm. This is being recorded uh, on June twenty first at seven p.m. Uh, Pacific time. But uh, there's there's some things that we can talk about, like in that kind of situation. I mean, what could possibly have gone wrong? Maybe by by the time next week, we might know exactly what's gone wrong, mm-hmm. but. Uh, I mean, we're, we're talking what, maybe a loss of electronics or, or a, you know, a sudden loss of a pressure. Like what's some of the things that, that you worry about personally in a submarine? Well, there's there's some some sort of common basic things that I'll cover for you real quickly. And then there's some sort of abstract ones uh, that I'll go over. And, and none of these things are known, of course, at this time. Maybe like you say, a week from now, we, we may have more, more understanding what took place. That's why I think it's really critical that um, that they've 
you know, they work and locate this thing. I will say that, you know, this is a very tragic event, of course. Um, there's going to be probably plenty of time for lawyers and everybody to get involved in all sorts of finger pointing and that kind of thing. And, and that will take place. I will guarantee. Yeah, that's already starting. Right yeah, it's already starting, you know, and, and so there, there's going to be plenty of room for that. There's, that's going to happen. But, um, at this stage, you know, the, the real issue is that there's five lives you know, hanging in the balance a little bit here. And, and if, you know, it can locate the machine and then figure out a way to, to get a topside, um, that, that's sort of mission critical right now. Um, to answer your question, the things that can go wrong, there, there's sort of a multitude, and, and here's why. Um, particularly with the depth that we're talking about at the Titanic, there, the, the wreckage sits in about 12,500 feet. And, um, if you consider, you guys are divers, so you're very familiar, but if you're standing at the shoreline, the atmospheric bar- barometric pressure uh, uh, on the shoreline is about 14.7 pounds per square inch. That means for every square inch of surface area of anything, there's about 14.7 pounds or almost 15 pounds of atmospheric pressure you know, exerted on it. Well, seawater is pretty heavy, weighs about eight and a half pounds a gallon. And when you get down to 12,500 feet, that external pressure just from the weight of the water increases to close to 6,000 PSI. So you see the difference between, you know, 15 pounds and 6,000 pounds per square inch. And what that translates into, if you kind of really stop and think about it, that's about three tons for every square inch of surface area. And that means that getting any kind of craft to that depth, particularly manned machines, is very, very difficult. There's not at any time, in, you know, in in history, you know, since submersibles have been operating, there's never been more than just a, a handful of machines that could reach that depth at a given time. And right now there's there's a handful of manned submersibles that can reach that depth. And none of these machines are are rescue equipped. They're not machines that are developed for rescuing. Um, they're observation platforms. They may have uh, a manipulator or even a pair of manipulators that can reach out and collect samples, but they're not something that's going to be able to lock onto a 23,000 pound piece of equipment and then lift it up off the seafloor. That's, that's not going to happen. That technology isn't there. What they will probably try to do is use uh, remotely operated vehicles, which again, it's, it's not an easy get because of the depth. It's two and a half miles down. So ROVs, remotely operated vehicles, are going to be operated from the surface using a fiber optic cable and a power cable, umbilical. But, you know, you're going to need about three miles of that. And, and so, you know, it's not like every vessel's got three miles of umbilical loaded on deck. So there's a lot of logistics that have to happen really quickly. And, and I was going to say that probably the silver lining in all of this, if there is one, is that the international community, with no warning or advance you know, notice, all of a sudden found themselves trying to respond to an emergency situation where time is of the essence and they are mobilizing personnel and equipment and assets to get them on site uh, within this time window. And um, when that is happening, they've got ROVs on site. They're, they're depth capable to get to that region. And really what they want to do is try to get, you know, eyes on this, on this wreckage if they can locate it and then see what they're up against and see how they can maybe attach 
a lifting cable or something like that. But all of these things are really, really super challenging at that depth. You know, it's not like you're just putting a rope down there and then latching on. You got to remember that you've got two and a half miles of, of cable that are suspended from a ship. And the sheer weight of that two and a half miles of cable means that the load placed on just itself, you know, supporting two and a half miles of material, it's, it, you know, it's under stress just to have that much cable under, you know, played out. So, you know, trying to, to lift a, another several thousand pounds of payload is is problematic it's hard and uh and trying to do it all on the on the clock in a hurry makes everything you know that much tougher but uh, people are mobilizing and they're doing it so it's almost like a, a real life drill if you will and the, and people are getting things there it's happening very quickly too yeah yeah so i mean in, in one sense that's good it's good practice but for maybe all of the worst reasons right yeah, and right. you have to find it first. That's so, exactly right. You know, that's that's a tough part. And you would think yeah, that'd be so, a little bit easier with the technology that we have with the UAVs and sonar and everything, but uh it's a lot of ocean you gotta cover, right? Even in that little tiny needle in a area. haystack situation. Yeah. It's it's not an easy task by any stretch, and so they're gonna have to try to, to see what they can narrow down and if there is some some banging or, or clanging down there, that's gonna help. But there's, you know, like I said, there's going to be plenty of time for the attorneys to get involved with this stuff and ask, why didn't you have this? Why didn't you have that? And that's all going to happen. But, but uh, you know, the focus is on right now, like, what, what can be done to try to expedite, you know, the location and, and keep this at, at the stage where it is right now, a potential rescue effort. You know, once this window uh, sort of exhausts itself and then everybody has to sort of take a, a solemn step back and, and admit that, you know, the likelihood of anybody still being alive, um, you know, that, that window closes, then, then everything changes from a, from a potential rescue mission to a locate and recovery operation. And that's still important because they need to find out what happened to the craft. And you started the, the question with, you know, what could happen? Well, <clears throat> there's a multitude of things. And number one, of course, the, the immense pressure, you can have a catastrophic, you know, breach of, of the system. Um, you can have electrical failure. You could have a, a complete failure of the, of the pressure vessel, which, you know, let's cross our fingers that that didn't happen. Um, <clears throat> you can have um, entanglement issues, which are, which are really dangerous. Most of these machines are always equipped with sort of backup safety features, meaning that, you know, if you're, you go down in the sub and it's, just a little bit negatively buoyant so it'll start its descent and this machine is probably set up to travel at about uh, maybe about a foot to a foot and a half a second and uh, at about an hour and 45 minutes into the uh, deployment when they lost contact they weren't even fully down to titanic depth yet at that at that descent rate so they would have been probably maybe somewhere between maybe 15 and 2,000 feet shy of reaching the seafloor so when they lost contact they were still on en route down to the bottom um so they were still increasing pressure they were still subjecting the the you know submersible to increase pressure so that's always a a little bit of a a risky sign it'd be one thing if they were down on the bottom they were stable then it's not likely that the hull breach would 
yeah. would would occur if they're already at depth. But if you're still increasing pressure, there's always a chance that something might happen. So um, another app. Uh, let's hope not. But you know, if it did happen, it would have been you know pretty, pretty quick. quick. <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, we we don't want to think that way yet. But um, you know, no. Uh, well, that's why I keep stressing that locating the craft and mobilizing all these assets and everything like that is actually a good thing because once they find out what exactly happened, it'll probably uh, satisfy you know the our understanding of what failed and then the other one is is that it will um you know eliminate a lot of the uh, the uh, sort of conspiracy theorists that are out there you know even on social media you're seeing all kinds of nonsense with no scientific basis or anything like that all yeah. kinds of things mm-hmm. being thrown out and you're just going oh my god you know okay <laughs> mm-hmm. you know don't, don't say anything more please you're not helping um I will tell you one of the abstract things. I, I spent a good amount of time training a lot of submarine pilots over my career and um, as a pilot instructor. And I will tell you that one of the uh, kind of like the attention getters when I tell people like down at the depths that they're dealing with, there's no surface light penetration down there. So everything that they see is based on artificial lighting. And uh, so it's, it's pretty pitch black at those depths. And um, um it's easy to not see things and that's that's problematic and an an analogy that i give to people all the time is if you're driving out through the desert wide open spaces and it's just you know miles and miles of open country and then you come along a fence line where there's um some barbed wire fencing or something and piled all along that fence you'll find things like tumbleweeds and other things blown up against it where they've traveled for miles and miles across the open desert until they finally encountered like this barbed wire fence and then they've all piled up against it. That same kind of process works in the ocean environment well. And there's lots of situations where you have ghost nets and old abandoned gill nets and stuff that are sometimes miles long. And they roll and move around in the ocean currents for sometimes maybe. So that's a plausible thing. The 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 nets. At first, when I heard about it, that they might have gotten tangled into a net. I'm like, net? They're ten thousand feet down. There's no way. Well, you're saying that there is. Well, they they wind up on the seafloor, and they roll around in the in the currents, and they can be doing that for literally for years. You know, five miles this direction, currents change, it moves 10 miles the other direction, and back and forth and back and forth they go. And eventually, they encounter something like a rocky reef or an outcropping or, in this case, maybe like a ship, and they and they wrap up and they tangle on it. And now, finally, it's just the same kind of process as these tumbleweeds running up against the fence line. You've got now a ghost net, and some of the times these things are thousands of feet long. And they're, you know, thin, you know, maybe monofilament netting line and that kind of thing. And you don't see it very easily and and combine that with dark water. It's very easy to get wrapped up in something like that. Or or certainly when you operate your thrusters, you just pull some of this right into the thruster and wrap it up. It's no different than having a boat, you know, with an outboard motor, wrap up a a stern line and wrap it up on the prop. Same kind of thing, right? And it's not like you can get out and free it up. That's exactly right. And now you're hung up. And um, so that can happen. I'm not suggesting, of course, that this is what's happened at all. I'm just just presenting some of the things that can take 
take place. And there's there's actual risks out there. It's not just wide open spaces that you know you you won't encounter anything that'd be problematic. And so the reality is is those things exist and uh, they have to be you know uh, sort of accounted for. And oftentimes, if you've got a situation like that, if you're operating in shallower waters, you can deploy another machine that can come down and help extricate, or they can at least see, and they can say, okay, you know, you need to move here, you need to move there, and and if you do that, you know, you'll free yourself up from this, and, you know, they can kind of coach you from a from a, a perspective that they can see what's going on, where the pilot of the craft might not have that same view, viewpoint. Now, <clears throat> in a case like where the Titanic lies, there isn't another craft on deck that can go down to that depth, right? So you're you're kind of on your what own. Should there be though? Should they have a standby sub? It, well, I mean, at least a one man rescue vehicle. It, maybe it's very yeah. It, I in a perfect world, yes, but in reality, very very rarely does that happen. Just even like the the limiting factor operating off the pressure drop uh, research boat. You know, she did a bunch of d- dives down to the Marianas Trench over the last couple of years, and as a matter of fact, she's been there. Uh, 20 times since 2019. I mean, that's incredible. That's that's a monumental game changer. And and if something happened to her at that depth, there's nothing else that can go down to that depth and get her. Mm-mm. So, man, so you could also have a loss of electronics, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of wiring in there goes bad or bad air, I would think, too. Generally speaking, electronics and seawater don't jive well together. And um, so when you're talking about these types of pressures, you know, like I said, you know, three tons per square inch, if you've got any kind of part of the system that's got a weak point in it, uh, that sort of relentless effort by pressure to force water into any kind of pocket or through any kind of fissure or anything like that, it, it, it wants to find a way in. Right. And so mm-hmm. electronic couplers and things like that that are designed for deep ocean applications, they're highly designed um, to avoid like water intrusion and things like that. And so um, they are some of the most expensive components of the machine, believe it or not. And, uh, you know, you think of all sorts of other parts of the machine being super expensive, but those, but those components are some of the most highly engineered and most expensive components because everything is really literally riding on it. Um, so to answer your question, I guess to sort of uh, highlight what you're, what you're saying is absolutely. I mean, anything electronic is subject to potential failure in those conditions. So there's a, there's a lot of stuff that can go wrong in a submarine in general. In this case, we don't know. We're just speculating at this point. We're just speaking in general uh, generalities as far as the things that could go wrong. Um, we did cover a little bit of that. In your opinion, do you feel that this incident is going to change uh, any type of regulations on uh, submarines or, uh, you know, pressure vessels? Uh, it, it, it has the potential to, but I think that there's a couple things going on here. This craft um, was a new design using um, a combination of titanium and carbon fiber, and there's not a lot of background using titanium and, and carbon fiber together. And so this was like an experimental craft. And, and unfortunately, um, one of the downfalls is that this machine had not gone through any 
what would be considered standard in the industry um, certification process through like American Bureau of Shipping or Lloyd's or something like that, any of the agencies that, that certify deep submersive craft. Um, and yeah, I don't want to get into the the reasons why they didn't or anything like that. Again, like I said, the attorneys are going to be all over this stuff. But yeah. But I will tell you that it wasn't. And um, there will be a lot to be said over the craft using things like uh, Game Boy controllers and components that are sort of off the shelf things that, that maybe weren't considered as robust. And I can tell you that the certifying agencies, <clears throat> just because of how they are, they would have a lot of snags over issuing a certification for a craft that had some of these components on there, there, there would be those kinds of things going on. But, um, the, the, the biggest thing is that it was new technology and new applications for materials in these, in these circumstances, you know, being sort of, uh, collaboratively used together. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's difficult to say. I'm not going to become judge and jury on any yeah. of this stuff. I'm just going to tell you that certifying agencies would have rolled their eyes and probably not um, given their blessing. And, um, you know, the sub was operating in international waters. So, you know, there's there's that. They, there's not a lot of restrictions. Um, so will That's there- the big thing that we want to hit on, though. There are certifications that you have to go through for a submarine, right? There are already regulations in place. Is that correct? Generally speaking, yes. Right. And and you have to okay, do that. So this is not like the Wild West out there, like some people well, think. Well, it shouldn't be. And again, like I this said. This was a tourist know, vessel. Yes. Yes. Like scientific vessels. Like if you're researching, you know, stuff or if it's a commercial vessel, you have certifications that you have to go through, right, in order to insure and all that stuff. Correct. Yeah. And, and generally, everybody does that willingly in the industry. It's an expensive process, but all the major players that are in the industry kind of go along with that. It's just sort of a, almost an unwritten rule that, you know, everybody just abides by. Um, the the ownership of the, the, the company, OceanGate, um, felt that they uh, had new technology that didn't necessarily fall within the categories of some of their testing you know, sequences and things like that. And so they, they just felt that their, their technology was so new that, that the certifying agencies wouldn't have a viable way to, to test. But again, you know, um, we're getting back sort of towards a speculative uh, area here. Nobody knows what happened yet. Right. And and uh, it might not have anything to do with the construction of the craft or anything like that. It could have been something entirely different. And, and until yeah. they locate it, could have been a net, could have been. I mean, we just don't know. And and so you could have been orcas. Yeah, exactly. You can't rule anything out is and you also can't. Say say that anything wasn't, you know, and uh, right. So it's all speculative at this yeah, point. Yeah, and it's and it's frustrating. Hopefully, next week we'll find out. It's frustrating. Yeah. Do you think this is going to hurt the sub industry? Because I know there's there's an industry, right? Yeah. I mean, you're a professional, but there's some people that do, you know, like to like the tourist sub industry, yeah. or well, like the tourist sub, and also like the hobbyist sub, the enthusiast sub, right? You know? 
well, like that. non-commercial, like, non-commercial. Yeah. Yeah. There, there, there may be an impact on some of the, um, private yacht type submarket. There's some companies that are, you know, to build small portable, you know, sort of personal subs, if you will, that are good for two or three people mm-hmm. kind of thing. And, um, they're, you know, they try to make them as easy as possible, but submersible operations are not, not as easy as, as people think. There's a lot to, that goes into the deployment and recovery of them, not to mention just the, the expense of the craft, but when you're putting them in and out of the water, it's not something you want swinging around on a pendulum and banging into parts of your, you know, your mega yacht or knocking things off the machine or damaging stuff. Because generally, I mean, even as a joke in the industry, you know, you come in and you bump something and depending on how, how much of a bump it was, it was like, well, was that a $5,000 bump or a $50,000 bump? Right. <laughs> and, and, uh, they're just loaded with expensive components and you know you, you knock a camera off and it's like ooh, ouch that was seventy thousand, you know and um so there's there's a lot of that and so even in a in a private market um you know you've got billionaires with mega yachts and things like that and they want to have this toy on deck you still have to have a crew that can handle the getting the machine in and out of the water effectively and safely without doing damage. And then you got to have a qualified person operate it. Um, you know, so there's, there's a lot of things that go into it. And so will it affect that mark, that market? There's potential for that for sure. Yeah. But also like the educational market too. Like there, there's some submarines that are used for ocean exploration and education too. Oh, you know, so I was wondering I, if maybe they might put the kibosh on that. No, I don't think so. Is there a danger? Is there a danger there? No, no those machines are, are pretty well established and they've got good track records. And I, and I don't think that there'll be a, a lot of change with that. I think probably what will happen is there will be sort of like mandatory requirements to um, when you do have a craft, particularly if you want to use it for commerce and you're going to be, you know, charging people to, to go in the machine like a tourism kind of operation, they'll probably tighten some of that and get a little bit harder to make it uh less able to, to allow somebody to operate without having some of these certifications and things like that. So, um, it, it may, it may do that. And, and I don't know that that's not a, not a good thing. Right. I mean, that's probably why. Exactly. And, and I think the biggest shock for everybody in this whole thing was that nobody knew they were doing tours to the Titanic. Yeah. I had no idea. It's well, like, well, no. we heard about this. It's like, holy cow. Well, no, people, they're selling yeah. seats. They've been doing it for, yeah. this is their third season. So they did the previous two years, they did two, two, you know, two different dives or two different trips. Um, uh, you know, uh, I'm saying like the general six, public successfully. Though? Well, they did four, they did they four, take- they did four missions and this was their fifth, okay. fifth mission. Right. So um, they had four dives to the to the wreck and and uh, the Titanic over the last two years, and this was starting you know going to be their next their next venture. Um, however, um, apparently, uh, you know I don't want to speak out of turn because I, I want to make sure that if anything we're putting out there has some legitimacy behind it. But it has been reported that on those previous dives. 
on all of those dives, they experienced um, communications problems. And so that, that says a lot about their, their operation that, you know, they, they had problems right from the start and, um, and here they are in their fifth mission and they still were having the same problems. So it meant that they hadn't rectified whatever the problem was, or maybe they just had a new, a new series of problems that they were dealing with, but it affected the same equipment. But bottom line is, is that, um, you know, they, they were having problems. And that's not good, oh, man. So it's, it's a terrible tragedy, you know, and uh, hopefully it turns into a, an amazing, you know, story, a rescue story. Mm-hmm. You know, there's mm-hmm. still time here. Like I said, by the time you guys listen to this, uh, we'll we'll kind of know we have a lot more. what happened, yeah. you know, or have some more information. But, you know, regardless, our hearts still do go out to them. And we want to thank you for uh, kind of talking with us about uh, kind of submarines in general, what could go wrong and, and a lot of the stuff that we covered. You know, we found it highly educational. It's going to kind of help the general public, you know, know a little bit more about submarines. Yeah. Well, well, you know, they're doing a lot of great work for us, right? And we're learning a lot about the ocean, the deep ocean world, uh, particularly with biologic studies and things like that. So they they have applications that are really, you know, make good sense and are super viable to to the world. And uh, and hopefully all that that will just continue on as, as, it, as it has been going. Because with this one tragic event, there are lots of milestones being sort of overcome in the deep submergence world. And, uh, and we don't want to lose sight of that either. There's a lot of great work that's being done with submersibles and certainly great film, uh, you know, documentary footage being captured and a lot of stuff like that and new things being discovered and new animal behaviors being documented. There's a lot of cool stuff that's going on and we don't want to lose sight of that. And is this a tragic mm-hmm. occurrence? Yes, but um, let's not forget that some really good stuff is going on too. Fantastic, yeah. Um, to switch gears to a more happier tone. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you stay on for five more minutes or so and just discuss the first HDS Explorer mission and what, how that mission went and what the mission is uh, projected to do in the future? Oh, okay. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you for asking. RentalToolsOnline.com. RTO. They've got you covered with rental tools that can handle the most demanding marine construction jobs and available to ship anywhere in the globe. But don't let the name fool you. They also have new tools and equipment for sale at some of the best prices around with amazing customer service. RTO has a Trustpilot score of 4.9 out of 5 with almost 200 reviews. They're real customers, non-paid, real thoughts. Divex Marine was impressed by the great inventory. Bill Eubanks at Harbor Diving Service praised the customer support and fast shipping. And John Shaw at Advanced Marine Services says, for a small contractor who needs to rent, RTO is the perfect solution. Quick and painless. Rental Tools Online carries all the major brands like Stanley, Nemo, JW Fishers, and even Pressure Junkies, to name a few. RTO has their own house brand that meets or exceeds industry standards. It's called Joint Zone. Not the place you used to smoke doobies by the bleachers, but an affordable hydraulic tool and lift bag alternative. 
Their joint zone lift bags are manufactured with a higher puncture resistance and load capacity than many other lift bags on the market. With advanced designs and materials, including optional cold weather coating, you don't have to worry about the next salvage job. So for the most convenient way to rent or purchase tools, go to rentaltoolsonline.com. That's rentaltoolsonline.com. Back to the show. Are we ready? Yeah, we're ready. Okay. Well, uh, Historical Diving Society, um, we have, you know, our membership. And a lot of our members are, um, you know, probably my age in their 60s or maybe even older. Um, And they're people that were part of the early sort of... um, revolution of, of scuba uh, and also in commercial diving of course but but the, the certainly that revolution of scuba you know brought a lot of, of uh, pioneers into that part of the diving world and uh, and that's been a big part of our membership but back in the 90s when I was actually uh, working with submersibles in a program down in Florida called the Scott Carpenter Man of the Sea program it was a life-changing event for me as a young man to work with astronaut Scott Carpenter and Navy aquanaut Bob Barth and and Tektite uh, and uh, primal aquanaut Jan Koblick and Dr. Andy Recknitzer and all of these figures. I mean, it was just on and on. And uh, it was it was a life-altering experience for me to, to work with these people. Um, and I made good, solid friendships that have lasted since 1994. And uh, as, a, as an idea for the HDS, I talked to uh, board member Mark Ward, who was also involved in the Scott Carpenter Man the Sea program that I worked in. And um, we said, man, we, we have got to come up with something that's similar to that kind of thing, maybe not so heavy on the on the deep sea apparatus stuff, but um, at least incorporate components of it and and offer that that type of experience to a whole new generation of young divers so that they can they can share for themselves similar uh, experiences to what my friend Mark Ward and I had experienced back in nineteen ninety four. So we set about creating the Historical Diving Society's Explorer mission. And the whole concept behind it is to uh, encourage young people um, to to come on board, but also for them to interact with more seasoned, either professional divers or certainly recreational style divers that are a little bit older to get a a, sort of a a cross-section of of ages so that they, everybody benefits from, from being exposed to one another and, um, sharing ideas and enthusiasms and all that kind of stuff and provide them a host of great experiences that they probably in any other circumstance would never have. And so what we came up with was our first Explorer mission and, and all of our concepts and everything like that kept steering us back to Key Largo, Florida, which is where the original Scott Carpenter Man the Sea program had taken place where people were able to pilot submarines and live in underwater habitats and and use commercial style diving gear and all that kind of stuff. So what we did is we, we set up an itinerary full of activities and part of the the importance of it was to bring in a bunch of guest speakers for each night of our of our mission that we'd have a new guest speaker 
And that person would be a sort of a luminary in the diving industry and certainly wanted to tie in people from uh, Key Largo, Florida, Florida area. So our first night uh, when we opened our program, we met and we had our dinner. And our first keynote speaker was Jan Koblik, who was a very famous um, uh, oceanographer. And um, he's a... Uh, an aquanaut that was involved with uh, the Puerto Rican International Undersea Laboratory and also the Tektite Habitat mission. And so he de- developed uh, uh, a habitat for the Prinal program in Puerto Rico. And um, he ended up bringing that same habitat back to Florida. And, and it is now set up in Key Largo as a, sort of an undersea habitat plus, you know, sort of slash uh, research Pretty type cool. facility. And um, at the time we were down there, they were in the middle of doing a 100-day world record saturation dive profile with Navy research diver Joe Dituri. And so we coordinated our, our schedule, our trip with that. And so we brought our people down the next, after John did his uh, presentation, the next morning we loaded everyone up on a boat and shuttled them over to the Marine Resources Development Foundation uh, campus. And we broke our group into uh, groups of four people and four people went into the underwater laboratory and they got to hang out with Joe Dituri and ask him questions and live underwater for a little while and have a meal underwater with Joe. And then the other four uh, suited up in Mark V, um, you know, like World War II era dive helmets and suits and climbed down a ladder and went in the water and walked around on the seafloor using that equipment. And then the other group, our third group, uh, donned full face masks with communications gear and they could go around on a tour talking to one another. And then they were linked into the underwater habitats. So when they got over to the habitat, they could look through the portal window and they could ask questions from outside to inside and hear back and forth. And so it was just a fantastic experience. When we got done with that, we uh, it was midday. And every hour and a half, we'd rotate everybody. So everyone had a, a chance to experience That's each cool. of the three activities. And then mm-hmm. midday, we had lunch, packed them up on a research boat, and they went out into the mangrove swamps and the Everglades to get a scientific uh, lecture on mangrove ecology and uh, Everglades ecology. And then in the evening, they got, got back and we met and we had our, our next evening meal. And our next uh, night's presenter was a very famous uh, Southern Florida underwater photographer, Stephen Frank. And he did a presentation on uh you know, photographing uh, reefs and wrecks in the Florida Keys. And uh, and then the following morning, we loaded all our equipment up on the uh, local dive boat right out of, of our hotel at the Ocean Reef uh, beachfront property there, which was spectacular. If you ever go down to Florida, I highly recommend staying there. Um, anyway, uh, we got on the boat and we went out and we dove some of the wrecks and reefs that uh, Stephen had presented on, on his presentation the night before. And uh, so we dove the Spiegel Grove and the Benwood Wreck and a couple of reefs. And then we made our way back in the evening and we went to the uh, Moat Marine Lab and where we got a special um, pres- you know, personalized tour of the facility with Moat Marine who was doing all sorts of valuable studies on 
coral ecology and coral growth patterns and uh, isolating DNA and trying to track which strains of corals will do the best in the in the water temperatures today in the Florida Keys and and uh, working with uh, coral restoration programs. And so we got that. And then we went on back to the hotel and, and had our next evening meal. And our guest presenter that evening was uh, TED Talk presenter uh, Roxanne Boonstra. And she is the head of the coral restoration program uh, in Florida. And they've got the largest coral nursery out in open water in the world. And uh, the next day, she loaded on the dive boat with us after doing her presentation. And then we went out to this <clears throat> coral nursery, which was fantastic because they had these large, like, 20, 25-foot 20, PVC-type trees anchored to the seafloor, all growing, each one of these trees growing anywhere from oh, maybe 60 to 100 uh, different uh, coral colonies growing on them. And they use those coral colonies as they, they clip them off, and they take them out to uh, local reefs, and they plant them. And so they do coral restoration programs on reefs that have been maybe overdove or, or kind of stressed out, and, and they... Uh, you know, regrow these reefs. And then when we got done diving there, we loaded on the boat and went to one of the reefs that they've been planting for about six or seven years. And it was remarkable to see the development and the new coral growth and in, in areas that had been previously kind of hammered and uh, all the life that it supports and brings back. And it was just fantastic experience. So we did that. that and so then when cool. we got back, I'm just going through the program for you. And we got back and we packed the vans <laughs> and we went down to uh, Isla Morado, about 18 miles away. And we had a special tour of the Diving History Museum uh, headed up by um, uh, our friend from the HDS. Jeez, um, I'm spacing out. Uh, Lisa, 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 Lisa Mangalia. Uh, Lisa Mangalia, yeah. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and, uh, and she gave us an absolute world-class tour hit all the high points didn't miss a beat and uh we just had a fantastic time and then we came back to the hotel and we had our last night um a uh sunset dinner on the beach under palapa and we had you know like a, a classical guitarist on the beach and and uh open bar and and kind of a tiki hut kind of thing and uh, as the sunset was going down, we finished our meals. Um, we wrapped up and, and moved over to a great big fire pit. And we sat and talked about the week's events and how, you know, what people were exposed to, the, you know, being in the underwater habitats and diving on the, on the coral restoration uh, uh, nursery grounds and all these different experiences and sort of did a kumbaya kind of like everybody just share what they thought were the high points and everybody to a person said we don't care where it is we want to go next year and that's right. awesome. how does that that sounds fantastic oh, yeah. it, it, i want to go now it's, it, it's just a go. lot of fun and and the, the point being is that you're you know you're introduced to this group of people that have a common interest, but we're doing things that are highly unusual. And this is what we want the, the Historical Diving Society to be sort of recognized for, is being able to put you in these kind of situations where you can have these experiences. And uh, it should be, you know, should be just a gas. So next year, uh, we're planning on doing it West Coast. And so obviously it's going to be oh, Catalina involved. That's here. And... Uh, uh, I'll give you a, possibly Santa Barbara. Uh, I'll give you a little teaser. 
of what we're thinking about mm-hmm. doing <clears throat> is that we'll meet in Long Beach. Um, we're, we're trying to figure out a way to tie in uh, Santa Barbara to it, and we haven't come that come full term on that. But but we will, you know, probably meet in Long Beach, and then we'll uh, hopefully be able to stay at the uh, Long Beach, uh, uh, the uh, Queen Mary. But we want to do an evening at the Long Beach Aquarium, and we'll spend some time. If they resurrect their program uh, by that time, they closed it down during COVID, so it's not quite back online. But if they do open their program, rather than do just a behind-the-scenes kind of tour of the aquarium, we might be able to get in the water, which would be fantastic. Um, <clears throat> but I can't promise that yet because they they haven't opened that program back up with the aquarium, so we're working on it. But but the following morning, we'll load You've got to call DeMeo and kind of yeah. poke him a little bit. Yeah, DeMeo. Yeah, so the next call. morning we'll pack yeah. up and we will load onto a tall ship. Uh, a tall ship sailing vessel from the uh, uh, Los Angeles Maritime Institute. And we will make our way to... I think we know the tall ship. We've seen that several times in the harbor. Mm -hmm. So we'll we'll wind up going all the way to Catalina Island. We'll offload. We'll check in the hotel. And then we will shuttle down and we'll load on to probably, you know, for our group, probably three helicopters. And we will do a low-altitude tour of Catalina Island, uh, cruising along the backside of the island and the coastal areas, and, and let everybody see the wilderness side of Catalina that most people never get to see uh, from the air. And uh, we'll do all that, and then we'll come back, and then we'll do our first night and our first guest speaker uh, talking about diving in Catalina waters and kelp forest environment and all that kind of stuff the following morning. We'll go out and we'll dive in the um, dive park. We'll probably, uh, as our vintage element, we'll probably use um, uh, double hose regulators. So everybody will get a chance to dive double hose regs, like act like the sea hunt days. And then, uh, Very nice. and then our modern component of the of the tour will be we will use the brand new Avello. Uh, program, uh, their new diving system. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with them or not, but very revolutionary. Where the 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 scuba tank itself is the the buoyancy compensator, and so they have a bladder inside the tank with a, a water pump. They can pump water in and out of it to add weight or or, or remove it, and um, and uh, it, it gets rid of your BC, so you have less drag coefficient. It's a little easier. easier. Very high tech, cool, cool new system. Catalina Island will be the West Coast um, training center, and so we'll be able to you know utilize that equipment here. And then we'll do um, nice. we'll do some dive boats and run down the coast. And you know each night we'll have our uh, new guest speaker and and run down the coast, do a series of dives, uh, probably see the the uh, hyperbaric facility, and then we'll do a, a rooftop. Um, barbecue one night and then we'll do a beach front with a musician again and all that kind of stuff out on Descanso Beach and have a, a, a special private meal. Oh, I forgot a, a key component. Of course, how could I forget? We're going to do the dive museum. And then one night we will do um, a in the the part of our zone museum. Yeah, the dive museum. But then we'll do <laughs> then we'll do the um, we'll do a film festival with like maybe twenty thousand leagues under the sea, or maybe a creature from the black lagoon, or something in the Avalon Theater. Very nice. Which is uh, the first movie theater in the world that was equipped with sound. Oh wow! That's crazy. I didn't, I didn't know, know that. that. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, it's a beautiful building. 
Oh, fantastic! It's, it's just it's just incredible. So I mean, you'll, again, we'll just sort of a flurry of of really unique experiences and things to do, and and then you know when you wrap up, you just go, wow, what happened this week? You know, just lots of lots nice. of activities, lots of fun stuff mixed in with diving and other activities, and just make it fun. Man, I might have to save up some vacation time. Yeah, it's right here no in our backyard. Kidding. Yeah, I I really want to go. Yeah, if there's anything we can do to help, let us know. Okay, you know, if you want us to do any kind of presentations or anything, okay. we're also presenters now. You know, I did a seminar at the scuba show. I am now a seminarian. <laughs> that's, oh, that's right. right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now a seminarian. <laughs> there, there, there really is no stopping you. <laughs> you know, I got paid for that. It was awesome. I got paid 150 bucks. Well, like, heck yeah. I like it. Well, it, it was just enough to pay our uh, assistant. So, yeah. oh, perfect. Yeah, it worked out. But yeah, John, it sounds like you're doing some great things, you know, and uh, it sounds like uh, you're keeping that adventurous spirit alive. And despite the submarine, you know, stuff that's going on right now, uh, we're not going to dampen the spirit of the explorer because at the end of the day, those people down there, they're explorers, they're enthusiasts, they want to learn about the ocean, they were excited, and unfortunately, the worst, you know, worst thing possible happened to them, and uh, hopefully they get back alive, you know, and they're rescued, but... Understood. You know, doing the stuff that we do, we're prepared to... I mean, I was about to say we're prepared prepared to die, but but I'm just saying, though, we know it's um, something that can happen. It's there. You know, anytime you you go below, below the sea, you're on life support, and you know, it's, uh, it can happen, you know, and it does, shouldn't stop you from exploring is what I'm getting at. No, you can, you can live in your closet too, you know, and you can say, yeah, right. yeah I, I'm protected. Nothing wrong. Nothing wrong can happen in here. And then the house burns down. Right. So, mm-hmm. so um, there, there is no, there's no guarantees. And so, you know, we're all here trying to, to do our best at getting through this this world and and we cross our fingers and hope for this this group of adventures that that uh, there's a, a miraculous outcome um you know and that's all we can hope for so again we want to thank you again john for coming on and uh you know sharing with us your, inf- your, your good knowledge and yeah. the information you know um let's uh let's plug the historical dive society one more time because it is very important can you tell us a little bit about why the historical dive site is uh, so important john well well the diving industry obviously uh has impacted the entire world uh you know, particularly with the uh, with the commercial and military end of things, but you know, since the uh, late 1940s, the recreational side of diving has exploded, and and today it's about an 11 billion dollar industry in the United States. So it's substantial, and it, you know, it, it supports a good chunk of you know our population that that are involved with diving. So um, it's it's a big industry. And, and even bigger in the commercial and military side of things. So um, I think everybody that's connected to the diving industry collectively, almost to a person, would say, well, well I imagine somebody out there is, is taking care of monitoring and documenting all the history uh, of the individuals and the development and evolution of equipment and all those types of things. And, and you know, sort of like someone's doing it, right? <laughs> and, and and that group that's doing that is a historical diving society, and uh, and thankfully there is a group that's doing that because um, 
particularly when you consider some of the pioneers, uh, certainly with the uh, recreational side of things, you know, when that really kicked off in the 40s and 50s, the people that were interested in doing that were people that were in their, you know, maybe late teens, 20s. And they were excited that this new type of equipment that allowed you to go underwater it was exciting. It was probably the same kind of people that want to get into, you know, hang gliding and, and uh, they want to get into, you know, uh, wingsuit skydiving and that kind of stuff. I mean, this you don't see a bunch of, you know, 70-year-old guys launching into that. It's usually the younger generation that gets into that. Well, anyway, those people now are, you know, in their mid to late 80s, in some cases 90s, and so we've lost a lot of those folks. They've just, you know, through attrition, they've just passed away, and they were the pioneers in in the industry. Well, luckily for everyone, the Historical Diving Society, founded in 1992 by Les Levini and and, uh, Skip Dunham, they had the foresight to start documenting these things, and they had the foresight to start interviewing these folks when they were starting to get up in their years and they were able to capture that information in those firsthand uh, oral accountings and place them in magazine form and, and uh, be able to preserve them for future generations. Um, and we continue that mission today. Our, our, our mission statement is uh, preservation through education. And so we want to make sure that, you know, people have the opportunity to learn about these people and, and these events and, and certainly equipment development, things like that, we want to make it available for future generations. And it's, you know, it's not an easy job, Some, but somebody's got to do it. And I'm proud to be part of it because I'm a big part of the industry and, and it's my way of giving back with part of my life as well, right? I mean, I can give back. And I have said to both of you guys before a number of times, I'm so excited to see a, a young group of enthusiastic guys. It, it takes me back 30 some years to where I was, you know, then, and I see myself in you guys, you know, and I get all excited because I go, they're the next torchbearers. You guys are the next generation that's going to carry this stuff forward. And so I can't thank you enough for, for taking that on, but also, um, I can't thank you enough for the industry for being a couple of young, enthusiastic guys that, that are interested to want to carry the torch. So thank you. Thanks a lot, oh, John, thanks. for those kind words. You know, it's uh, I, I mean, like it's like we told you before, we think it's important for divers to know their history, you know, and uh, one of the ways that you do that is educate yourself. And the Historical Dive Society is a great resource that you can use to educate yourself in, in the history of your trade. You know, and, or if you're an avid scuba diver in the history of your sport. Right. So, you know, go ahead and uh, go to hds.org and mm-hmm. uh, find out how to be a member. It's really easy. Sign up and, uh, yeah, get that cool magazine, awesome magazine, and then know that your your money, your donations going towards furthering the, uh, you know, history, preserving our history and our past for right. our future. Yeah. Yep. Thanks. So again, John, thank you so much for coming on. It's been great, and uh, can't wait to have you have you on again at some point. Oh, yeah. Okay. And hopefully, hopefully, with uh, something really exciting like the next Explorers mission or something. That would yes, be great. That would be. I would love to hear. Which about would that. be great Super because it'd be awesome if both you guys were participants. Because that way, you would. Oh my God, I would love to, to identify exactly with it, and you can talk about it from a first-hand perspective. Wouldn't that be great? It sure would. I'm there.
Yeah. Oh, yeah, count know, us in. Here, we're, we got so carried away. I forgot to, to even mention this, the Explorer program. One of our big things is we're doing is we are offering scholarships for like, uh, oh. you know, uh, worthy candidates that are uh, college students in marine science or marine biology or something like that so that they can have these experiences in their young diving careers. And uh, so uh, this past trip, we had uh, two college students, uh, one from Stanford, one from uh, uh, San Diego. Uh, that were nice. uh, part of our group. And I'm telling you, it was fantastic having them along, just that young enthusiasm and interacting with everybody and, and being able to talk marine science. And they were so stoked, and it was great. So we're going to <clears throat> definitely um, carry on that tradition of offering scholarships to um, worthy candidates. That's awesome. So we'll definitely keep our eye out for potential candidates. Okay, thank yeah. you. So cool. All right, John. Well, thank you so much. And thank you guys for listening. Uh, We hope you enjoyed this uh, episode of the Bottom Dollars Dive Check. And we will see you on the flip side. The flippity flop. Yeah. It's not not a bad outro. (laughs) See you next time. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of the Bottom Dollars Dive Check. Make sure you like and follow on our social media pages on Instagram and Facebook. Please share this podcast with your friends or anyone interested in commercial diving. The only way that uh, we can make this successful is if we do get a lot of people that are listening. We get more listeners, we get more sponsors, and that means more free stuff for you guys. That's right. We are hooking up all of our diver brothers and sisters in the trade. And uh, if you keep sharing and liking, we're able to do that a lot more. Our Instagram is at bottomdwellersds. Our Facebook is Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack. And you can always like and follow me at LB Diver on both. The Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack is available on all podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, Anchor. We also have it streaming on our website at thebottomdwellers.com. So keep listening. Keep it safe. Keep it salty. This is LB Diver. Out. <laughs>